Hello and welcome to Macro Horizons High Quality Spreads for the week of February 16th, all about QT. I'm your host, Dan Creter, here with Dan Belton, as we formalize our expectations for the path to Fed balance sheet normalization. We'll discuss whether or not the Fed will eventually have to sell securities out of the summer portfolio, as well as our expectations for the impact on credit and swap spreads as the balance sheet is run down. Each week, we offer our view on credit spreads, ranging from the highest quality sectors such as agencies and SSAs to investment-grade corporates. We also focus on U.S. dollar swap spreads and all the factors that entails, including funding markets, cross-currency markets, and the transition from LIBOR to SOFR. The topics that come up most frequently in conversations with clients and listeners form the basis for each episode, so please don't hesitate to reach out to us with questions or topics you would like to hear discussed. We can be found on Bloomberg or emailed directly at dan.creter, K-R-I-E-T-E-R, at bmo.com. We value and greatly appreciate your input. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Well, Dan, our conversation today is going to focus primarily on balance sheet normalization. But before we dive into that topic, let's get your thoughts on credit spreads in the last week. What's changed? Yes, so there's been a lot of volatility that hasn't changed. That's really been the name of the game for most of 2022. Credit spreads have leaked wider. We noted earlier in the year credit spreads were really outperforming risk assets generally and rising treasury yields. They started to catch up a little bit. They're still pretty tight considering where a lot of the economic fundamentals are. But spreads in both indexes that we track, the Ice Bammel and the Bloomberg Barclays, are right at 15-month highs. So they're starting to leak wider. And in, even yesterday when we saw a pretty strong risk on tone following supportive headlines out of Russia and Ukraine, credit spreads didn't really outperform. They were pretty much unchanged on the day. And that's telling to me. I think there's been a lot of pessimism starting to come around into the credit market, and it's going to be hard to see credit spreads narrow from here. Yeah. And even on the risk on day that you mentioned, client activity is measured by trade statistics were heavily skewed toward client selling. So yeah, I think the bearish sentiment is obviously still being sustained. The story of the past week really can be captured by two words here, Bullard and Russia. We don't really need to spend too much time on either. I think the Russian headlines, that's going to be what determines the direction of credit spreads in the immediate term. And you know who's to say on that front? I guess I'll just say that I've at least been personally a little surprised by the swings we're getting in response to Russia headlines. It's just we're going to invade or not invade and big swings intraday on the back of that news. I would expect it maybe a little less volatility while we wait to see what the ultimate outcome of this will be. But that has been the case. So I definitely think that Russia will continue to drive markets in the short term. But the view we've laid out in our previous episodes probably still remains true for us still targeting that 125 basis point level on the broad IG index. And at that point, I think we'll begin to see some stability there and maybe a period of consolidation around that level while spreads await more inflation data, more economic data to take their cue on the next leg in credit. But you know, backing up to what you said earlier, the story of the year has been credit spreads outperforming, if you want to say that, or maybe just not widening as much as we might have expected given changes in a few different asset classes, equities, treasuries, looking at historical comparisons to the current environment when spreads moved sustainably wider over a period of time. And spreads have hung in fairly well, even though we're talking about a pretty substantial widening. It maybe hasn't been as much as we would have expected. And I think the level of reserves in the system are still playing an important role in that. 
Yeah, there's certainly a lot of liquidity in the market, and that's going to continue to pin credit spreads towards the narrow end of their long-term trading horizons. And to your point, I think it's been a lot of volatility this year. We've had the Russia situation. There's been flare-ups there. And then when those start to ebb, then we have uncertainty in the form of higher treasury yields. What's the Fed going to do? So it's really kind of a pick your poison for credit these days. It's either geopolitical flight to quality induced widening or widening based on a repricing to higher treasury yields, higher Fed policy rates and less accommodation. Neither of those scenarios is remotely bullish for credit, yet we're still trading around 110 basis points in the index. That's about 40 basis points narrower than long-term average. And a lot of this has to do with the liquidity in the system, with the monetary accommodation that we've seen. The Fed's balance sheet is at $8.9 trillion. Just to put that in context, that's about double what we saw before COVID. And that's just been a real boon to risk assets. And I think we've seen a lot of rate hikes priced into the market in just the last week, and certainly since the January FOMC. But there's a pretty strong argument to be made that what's more important for the path of credit isn't necessarily how many rate hikes we're going to have in 2022. Well, that is important, obviously. It's financial conditions that since the credit crisis have been the stronger determinant of credit spreads. And we're going to see financial conditions – I mean they've started to change already. They're going to continue to worsen alongside balance sheet normalization. And so I think with that, we can turn to our primary topic of today's podcast, which is balance sheet normalization. We're going to be getting more information on that hopefully this afternoon with the release of the FOMC minutes. By the time everyone's listening to this, you will have seen those details. We have not yet seen them as we record this. But we're going to be pretty broad. I don't think there's going to be much in the minutes that's going to sway this conversation much outside of a big surprise. So I guess we can just dive right in. And what we're going to focus on today is looking at a framework for trying to estimate the terminal level of reserves in the financial system once the Fed is done shrinking its balance sheet. Look at a timeline for a realistic expectation for when we'll reach that level of terminal reserves. We'll talk a bit about the methodology. Will the Fed sell or will it just be achieved through reinvestments? And then we'll conclude with talking a bit about the impacts for both credit and swap spreads as the balance sheet is wound down. So I'll just begin with a brief discussion regarding the framework we use to try and estimate the terminal size of the Fed's balance sheet. And we do this, obviously, by solving for the liability side of the Fed's balance sheet. The asset side will wind down to the point of scarcity among the Fed's main liabilities. And the four main ones are, of course, currency and circulation, the treasury account at the Fed, the RRP, and reserves that go to fund the financial system, basically. And we have to solve here for basically reserves. I mean, RRP and reserves are very similar, but they are different. But for the purposes of this calculation, it doesn't really matter the breakdown because we would make the reasonable argument that reserves can't become scarce while there's any volume at the RRP. So we assume that RRP falls to zero in this exercise. We also take currency in circulation and the TGA as givens. So we assume that currency in circulation grows at 6%, which is a historically average level. And we just hold the TGA constant at $700 billion, which was the most recent guidance from Treasury at the most recent quarterly refunding process for where the cash balance will be held. That leaves reserves. And to estimate the amount of reserves that need to be on the Fed's liability side of its balance sheet to supply the financial system with enough reserves to function, our analysis leans on two things. The first one is bank HQLA portfolios, which have some requirement for reserves to be held on bank balance sheets. And then secondly, a figure that will estimate the amount of reserves that are left over for the rest of the financial system. Basically, the supply reserves that will meet the demand 
across the world for all reserves held outside of bank HQA portfolios. I won't dive too deep into the weeds here, but we estimate the size of bank HQLA demand for reserves by looking at the size of HQLA portfolios as a percentage of bank assets and then the mix of reserves in their HQLA portfolios. Because obviously, treasuries can be used alongside reserves to meet HQLA requirements. But due to other regulations, there is a contingent of the HQLA portfolio that has to be held in just reserves. If you want more detail on this, you can look at our published weekly on Friday, which will walk through the numbers a little bit. For the purposes of the podcast, we'll probably just say we estimate bank assets to grow at 3% per year, which is the post-crisis average. And we estimate that banks need to hold 40% of their HQLA in reserves. Taking these as givens, we can estimate that banks require $1.85 trillion worth of reserves to be held in their HQLA portfolios. We then need to figure out that last plug figure, the sort of unknown supply of reserves that needs to be used to supply the rest of the world with reserves. And to estimate this, we go back to the experience of September 2019 when reserves were known to be scarce. And basically what we did is we just plugged in the exact same variables for HQLA demand into our model here and came up with an estimate of about $1.1 trillion in reserves necessary and looked at where reserves actually were at the time when we got to scarcity. So we estimated that banks needed $1.1 trillion in September of 2019 for their HQLAs and actual supply of reserves at about $1.5 trillion. So a $400 billion buffer there that we estimated was the proxy for what the rest of the financial system needed. So an increase of 40%, say, of what banks held in their HQLA portfolio. I know this is a lot of numbers here, but I'm just trying to be thorough. And if we take that 40% and apply it in the current environment, the plug figure, if you will, results in an additional $650 billion in reserves that are necessary to be supplied through the entire financial system. So combining the $1.85 trillion we estimated for bank HQLA need with an additional $650 billion for the rest of the financial markets gets you an aggregate reserve need of $2.5 trillion. And then if we combine that with the TGA and our assumptions for currency and circulation, that gets you a terminal size of the Fed's balance sheet at $6 trillion. So I know a lot of numbers there, but hopefully that was helpful to at least walk through how we arrive at the estimates because it proved relatively accurate in 2019, and hopefully that will remain true this time around. Now, the next question is then, Dan, if we're operating with a target for the terminal size of the Fed's balance sheet of $6 trillion, when will we reach that level? So at this point, we incorporate our assumptions for Fed balance sheet runoff. And right now, obviously, market participants know there's a lot of uncertainty here. There's been increasing chatter about the potential for the Fed to be actively selling securities out of its SOMA portfolio. But in our base case, we think that the Fed is going to adopt a similar cap structure to what they did in 2017 to 2019. But like Powell has said, and like many on the FOMC have advocated, these caps are likely to start higher and increase faster than in previous episodes. So we're assuming that initially the Fed's going to allow a maximum of $12 billion in treasuries and $6 billion in MBS to run off its portfolio each month. And then these caps are going to be increased every two months until they reach $60 billion in treasuries and $30 billion in MBS by July of 2023. So we know the Fed's treasury portfolio, and we can calculate how much the Fed is going to actually allow to roll off its portfolio over the next 12, 24 months until we get to that $6 trillion portfolio size. With respect to MBS, it's a little bit trickier estimating how much is going to run off the Fed's balance sheet given this cap structure. But BMO's MBS strategist, Brian Yee, has 
put out estimates that absent any caps, a maximum of roughly $30 billion per month should roll off the Fed's MBS portfolio. And so we incorporate those estimates into our forecast as well, assuming that once these MBS caps reach $30 billion a month, they'll be essentially maxed out every month, give or take. So assuming that these cap structures are met, we assume that we're going to reach that $6 trillion balance sheet size by April of 2025. And I think it's important to look at the maturity structure just based on the uncertainties with respect to different styles of runoff that the Fed might take. And particularly as it relates to the potential for the Fed to be actively selling out of its portfolio. If the Fed, in a fairly extreme scenario, started balance sheet runoff without caps and allowed the maximum amount to run off its portfolio starting in July of 2022, the Fed could see, without selling, a maximum of about $1.25 trillion run off its balance sheet. That's $360 billion or so in MBS runoff and $900 billion in Treasury runoff over the 12 months beginning in July of 2022. So that $1.25 trillion is sort of the upper bound that we see in the first 12 months of normalization if the Fed were to not sell. And I think that's a pretty high amount that the Fed would probably be comfortable with and not have to result to selling to augment that amount of runoff. So a lot's unpacked there. So let's just back up and I want to talk about some of the key questions surrounding balance sheet normalization. You started to allude to the will they sell one, but let's just anchor the conversation here. Base case, we estimate the Fed needs to get reserves down by approximately $3 trillion, down to $6 trillion, and we expect that will happen sometime around mid-2025. Okay. So if that's our base case, I want to talk about a few key issues that should be considered that could present risk to the either upside or the downside to those forecasts. And the first one I want to talk about is the standing repo facility because the standing repo facility wasn't in place in 2019 the last time we saw the Fed meaningfully normalizing its balance sheet. And obviously, we had the repo market event in September of 2019 with the Fed coming in with extraordinary repo market operations that the SRF will function very similarly to. So we have the standing repo facility this time around. The argument is that maybe its presence allows the Fed to be a bit more aggressive in testing the bottom of reserve supply levels because the standing repo facility will be there to provide liquidity in case there is any shortage of reserves. So, Dan, how are you factoring in the standing repo facility into your expectations for a Fed balance sheet normalization? So, to me, the Fed's standing repo facility mitigates the risk that the Fed goes too far with portfolio normalization. And I think, like you mentioned, we saw that in 2019. It was nearly a destabilizing event when we saw SOFR spike to five and a quarter percent. The Fed would prefer to avoid something like that where funding markets become dislocated. And the standing repo facility offers the Fed a nice cushion to allow reserves to get scarce. And the Fed will be able to see very clearly as standing repo facility volumes increase that reserves are scarce. And they'll be able to see that without an adverse consequence of funding market disruption. So I think it's just going to allow the Fed a little bit more of a cushion. It's going to give the Fed a little bit more confidence to be aggressive in normalizing its portfolio, knowing that it can pull back or it has the automatic mechanism to pull back without overdoing it like it did in 2019. Yeah, to be honest, rather than targeting a specific level of reserves, which having just done this, we could acknowledge that there are assumptions built into just about every variable in our framework, and there's significant uncertainty around those variables. I mean, it's a very fluid situation. 
So rather than targeting a specific level for the terminal size of the Fed's balance sheet, the Fed can use the standing repo facility as almost a canary in the coal mine, where whenever you start to see appreciable volume in the standing repo facility that is sustained, not just the result of maybe quarter-end window dressing when we tend to see some disruptions in short-term markets. If you start to see intraday there being consistent and appreciable volumes in the standing repo facility, that to me is telling you you've reached the point of scarcity. At that point, the balance sheet should no longer be run down. And I think that the Fed could lean on the standing repo facility that way. But high level, I mean, we're in agreement. It allows the Fed to potentially be more aggressive in shrinking their balance sheet. And that leads to the next open question, which is, will the Fed sell? The standing repo facility arguably gives them cover to do so. So will the Fed then be that aggressive? I think that's going to be data dependent, to borrow a phrase from the Fed. I think the Fed right now, it seems clear to me that that's not their preferred tactic. They released principles for reducing the size of their balance sheet alongside their January FOMC statement. And they said pretty clearly, I think, that they prefer to manage the reduction in the balance sheet by altering the amount of reinvestments. To me, that seems identical to the structure they used in the 2017 to 2019 episode, where they adjusted these caps over time to allow reinvestments to shrink, but maintaining an orderly decline of the balance sheet. They want to avoid a scenario where there's too much of a rundown in the portfolio and an outsized volume of securities is dumped into the market when the market can't handle it. So in my base case, no, they won't sell, but it's possible if inflation is really stubborn and when we get to the third quarter of the year, say, and inflation hasn't come down, they might consider that. Yeah, I think a couple high-level considerations in support of your argument, Dan. One, yes, the standing repo facility gives them cover if they want to do it. But the standing repo facility, at least in its current form, is untested. Theoretically, it should work to provide necessary liquidity, but we've never actually seen that in practice, not really. And does the Fed really want to move forward with an untested facility and potential unknown side effects in order to sell securities out of SOMA. Two, you said this earlier, there are a lot of treasuries rolling off and they can shrink their balance sheet very meaningfully just with reinvestments by adjusting those caps. So you'd have to really need to get the balance sheet down quickly if you decided you really needed to sell. And third, active QT is a very difficult genie to put back into the bottle. I mean, there is a lot of uncertainty around the path of inflation right now. Most Pundits, the Fed, uh, seem to expect that around the midpoint of the year, inflation is going to fall meaningfully. And if that does happen and inflation falls and you've already announced active QT, what are you going to do? Undo that? That's going to be very difficult. So I think those three things, in addition to what you said, make active QT very unlikely. But you can never rule it out because if the Fed does need to send a very strong message on inflation, if, like you said, we're getting into Q3, Q4 and these numbers are still extremely high, they need to have that arrow in their quiver should they decide they need to use it. I'll give you one more point against the argument for using QT as an active tool. The Fed's communication, they want to be clear about how they're normalizing the balance sheet, normalizing policy rates. It seems like the consensus among the committee is to use one of their policy levers, and that is likely to be the Fed funds rate. So if the Fed does need to be more aggressive than they're anticipating, they can still have this balance sheet normalization happen in the background while they're raising policy rates more aggressive. It's easier for the market to understand, and it reduces some of the uncertainty. You know, Imagine a scenario where we're coming into a meeting and saying, is the Fed going to increase its sales? Is it going to raise the policy rate by 25, 50 basis points? Just a lot to manage there from the communication standpoint. 
Yeah, good point. And they've told us that they prefer to use the rate. The rate is the primary method which they conduct monetary policy. So a lot of strong points against the idea that the Fed will actively sell. But like with anything, it will be data dependent. We will see. So Dan, I think that pretty well surmises our expectations for the path of balance sheet normalization, what it could look like and what the key considerations are. Maybe now we can turn the conversation to what we expect as a reaction in both credit and swap markets. And we can start with credit because I think credits can be fairly straightforward. I mean, as the Fed's balance sheet is wound down, spreads will likely widen. The question is how much? Yeah. So the way that I think about it with respect to the impact on credit, it's just going to make for a more challenging environment for credit spreads. So I'm not going to put a target widening because this is going to be such a long-term impact. We're going to see this happen gradually over the course of the better part of three years, assuming that nothing breaks and the Fed is able to continue balance sheet normalization until the point of reserve scarcity. If you look back at the 2018, as the Fed was normalizing its balance sheet, there was just a constant upward pressure on credit spreads. This pressure came and went. Credit spreads had episodes of narrowing, but the general trajectory was wider for credit spreads. And I think we're going to see something like that over the longer term here. There's a lot of factors pressuring credit spreads wider, and balance sheet normalization is going to be one of them. So in terms of the impact of balance sheet normalization on credit spreads, you know, I return to our medium-term targets of 125 basis points, and then likely it's just going to be more of a challenging environment. Credit spreads are going to be pressured wider over the better part of the next couple of years. Of course, that's going to include some periods of outperformance, but generally I think credit spreads are just going to move wider as the Fed forces these treasuries and MBS to clear the market without its support. Yeah, I like the comparison to 2018, and it's worth noting here that at the end of 2018, we saw a significant spike in credit spreads, the most meaningful sell-off other than COVID in the past couple of years. That spike was not a result of balance sheet normalization, obviously. Rather, it's looking at the path of spreads over the entire year. We just kind of saw this slow, steady grind, but a dependable trend wider as financial conditions tighten. That's going to be what happens now. So, you know, as the Fed normalizes balance sheet, like you said, there will be periods of underperformance, flights to quality, periods of outperformance, but it's going to be just a consistent upward pressure on spreads in this grind wider mentality. Turning to swap spreads, you can make a similar argument just in reverse, where if QT is a consistent modest pressure upward on credit spreads, you can make the same argument that it is a consistent, modest downward pressure on so for swap spreads. Well, just more treasuries need to clear the market and there's heavier collateral in the system. That makes sense. But I think the discussion is more nuanced when it comes to swap spreads, at least initially, because there is that distinction between RRP and balance sheet reserves. And well, we assume that RRP would drop to zero in the long run. In the near term, there's still a trillion and a half dollars of RRP. And as we see the initial waves of balance sheet normalization, whether we see volumes come out of RRP or out of banking reserves is going to have a big impact on the path to swap spreads. Yeah, Dan, if we see the first mover of this decline in Fed securities result in a reduction in bank reserves rather than RRP. We could see a scenario in which banks are forced to sell some of their securities to make up for these lost reserves. And as Treasury's cash balances have increased over the past two and a half months or so, it does seem like reserves 
declined more than RRP volumes, which have been pretty sticky since December. And so if that is the case over the longer term, we could see some upward pressure on treasury yields, just given the forced selling that we could see from bank portfolios. Yeah. I mean, forced selling might be a strong way of describing it. It might just be more as treasuries become larger and larger components of bank HQA portfolios, like we talked about earlier in the podcast, at some point they need to have reserves for other regulatory purposes. So yeah, I mean, I guess it is for selling ultimately. The key determination for me is if it is RRP, you really wouldn't expect to see much impact. That's really not an increase in treasury collateral, not really. And actually, if RRP volumes go down significantly, that's actually mechanically sort of upward pressure on SOFR, which would actually be then be a widener for SOFR swap spread. So I don't think we'd get to the point where RRP volume reductions would be a significant upward driver on SOFR. It's just really representing the fact that we wouldn't see any narrowing, right, if RRP volumes do come out. But like you said, Dan, it's really interesting to see how RRP volumes have evolved alongside this, what, $550 billion increase in Treasury's cash account at the Fed. They haven't fallen at all. It's all been banking reserves falling and then the asset side of the Fed's balance sheet continuing to grow alongside QE purchases that are still being made. So it hasn't been RRP at all. And I think if you look at the underlying drivers there, that makes sense. I mean, who uses the RRP? It's money market funds. Money market fund deposits tend to be pretty sticky, particularly as rates rise. We see higher short-term rates and money market fund rates adjusting more quickly than maybe other options such as bank deposit rates, things like that. So money market funds tend to be pretty sticky, their deposits. And then we also have state and locals who are using the RRP. And we know that state and locals are still pretty flush with stimulus money that hasn't all been deployed yet. There is still some uncertainty over when and how those funds will be deployed. And while that uncertainty reigns, we have a lot of state and local money and still invested at the very short end of the curve. So I think you're going to have to see a meaningful reduction in the size of the Fed's balance sheet before we start to see RRP volumes falling appreciably, which means that the first few waves of balance sheet normalization will likely be felt on the side of banking reserves. I would just say that that scenario you described earlier where banks then sell treasuries as a result of their falling reserves, while that is a concern in the long term, just given how many reserves in the system, how oversupplied the market is, $3 trillion according to our estimate, it's difficult to see any meaningful sales of treasuries by banks, likely in 2022. That might be more of a 2023 story as reserves grow more and more scarce. So even though we think it will be banking reserves that bear the brunt of the first couple waves of balance sheet normalization, I don't think it's going to result in meaningful downward pressure on swap spreads. Okay, Dan. Well, obviously, we've covered a lot of ground today, so I think we can probably wrap it up here unless you have anything else to add. I think that covers it. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com slash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email us at daniel.belton, B-E-L-T-O-N, at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show is supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been edited and produced by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. 
Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal. 